This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast, where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this week we have a special guest joining us. We have Zach Newkirk, who is the uh, current Jeopardy champion and also a unique figure in Jeopardy history uh, Mm -hmm. in that he was an undefeated champion who had to take a hiatus because of these unprecedented times. Uh, I guess, Zach... uh, our, our, our first question is just, um, what was that like, taking those months off and, and kind of waiting for things to settle down, I guess? <laughs> well, first, thank you uh, so much, Kyle and Emily, for, for having me. Um, I know we had scheduled to have me on quite a while ago and decided to <laughs> hold off until uh, I came back, and that ended up taking a lot longer than I think any of us realized. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the whole experience was was quite phenomenal i mean it's just a joy being there on the on the front end and then i i knew i'd have to come back at a certain point and this was back in march and um they kept uh delaying it based on public health guidance and i estimate they rebooked my flights seven or eight times and so finally <laughs> wow come in october um then they unfortunately had to delay a couple more times due to alex trebek's health and then unfortunately mm-hmm. his passing um, and so then, uh, <laughs> when that happened, I got a call from one of the contestant coordinators who said, you know, just, just hang tight some more. And I figured, oh, here we are, another indefinite hiatus, <laughs> which was a feeling mm-hmm. I had known, um, pretty well at that point. But then, uh, a few days later, I got another call saying, oh, how's December 8th? And so, um, I was able to come back pretty quickly and, um, it was just exciting. And, um, it was something that I was looking forward to for so much of the year i it was it's just so exciting being on the stage being with the lights and the contestants and the and the hosts and it's just so much fun so it was something sort of to get me through a, a difficult year for many of us mm. right yeah absolutely um were you uh able to like continue kind of studying and preparing over the course of the pandemic or did did the pandemic brain kind of impede any any prep that you would have been doing <laughs> uh in theory i should have probably been studying a little bit more <laughs> um <laughs> but th- there were i think it helped a lot the part of my studying process was to watch uh, a lot of older movies that i you know classic mm. movies that i had not seen and if i had gone back you know under the normal timeline within the next week or so i just wouldn't have had the time and opportunity yeah. to watch a ton of old long movies that's a fun part of prep is, um, I, I thought, is uh, kind of getting to kind of discover classics that you maybe wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have experienced if you hadn't been kind of prioritizing them for that reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and they're so a lot of them are so old that um, I just don't know the plot and there's no risk of any spoilers because at, at a certain point, everyone just assumes that someone else has uh, seen that movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you maybe unique also in that you have competed under two different hosts yeah yeah um we are we're all um heartbroken about 
Alex's passing, but what was that like to go from uh, Alex Trebek Jeopardy to Ken Jennings guest host Jeopardy? It it never really hit me really until last night, Thursday night, when I saw a video that Jeopardy had posted, which was sort of a, a montage of all the times the host said the dollar amount that I had won. And just hearing mm. the, the the very familiar voice of, of Alex immediately contrasted with Ken Jennings it just struck me that, wow, this this is a, a totally different era. And I uniquely and unexpectedly sort of, in a way, bridged the bridge the divide and it it, it it hit me hard at that moment um, yeah just hearing that yeah i guess i just said you're completely unique i guess there was there was a you know a coronavirus i can't remember who it was who was the returning champion from from alex's last jo- show to ken jennings first but yeah um that's it's an unusual position to be in yeah i uh, mm-hmm. I, I reached out to him on facebook jim gilligan and, right, and, that's right. And we, um, you know, we were talked about his his experience and how the two of us share a very unique um, distinction in, in Jeopardy history. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Before before the hiatus, was it still socially distanced when you were there the first time, or did was there a regular studio audience there? There was not a full audience, but we were each allowed to invite. I think a maximum of five guests. Um, mm. But otherwise we were all in the green room, which was um, a small or is a small room. I, when I was there in December, the door was open. I peeked in. It looked like they had converted it into an office uh, of some mm. sort. But uh, back in March, the only difference I think from a normal pre COVID taping was that we weren't able to shake Alex Trebek's hand but even then, mm. I mean, they took the photo of him right next to us. So he was yeah. right there. I think we made, you know, we like brushed arms or something. So this was on March 11th. That was the last taping. And it's yeah. just wild to think about that day because I, I flew home that night on an airplane. I didn't have a mask on. I didn't even own a mask. And it was just, <laughs> just a totally different time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're all like... 20 years older (laughs) um Uh, we were so young then uh so we should get to the shows on monday january 25th we had the contestants elliot kalen a writer originally from milburn new jersey madeline johnson a digital marketing manager from portland oregon and brian chang an attorney from chicago illinois whose four-day cash winnings at that point totaled eighty-eight thousand one hundred two dollars and we got the Jeopardy round categories, Name That Male Author, Letter Perfect Cinema, World Capital Rivers, Do Me a Flavor, New to the OED, and Taekwondo, uh, a video category featuring Z James. I, I think this is probably the earliest in any episode that we have actually plugged another podcast for free, uh, but Elliot Kalin hosts, uh, co-hosts a couple of very entertaining podcasts one is called the flop house which i particularly enjoy and if you enjoy people making fun of bad movies you should check it out i did not know that so i'm going to he has a distinctive voice he has a comical voice Mm, yes 
anyway, we, we're talking about Jeopardy, not not free publicity for other podcasts. Although sometimes it seems that way. We just really like podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah believe it or not. <laughs> we had a triple stumper in the do me a flavor category at the $400 level. And I don't know how much older all of these contestants are than me, but I've eaten enough of these to to feel like, oh, that 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 should have been obvious. Uh, the clue is 44 years after original Crunchy Cheetos. This flavor that burns your mouth and feels so good was introduced. Uh, Madeline guessed what are hot Cheetos, spicy Cheetos. Brian guessed what are red hot. Uh, but that's flaming Hot Cheetos. Flamin' Hot. Which you would buy at lunch in middle school, and then everything for the rest of the day would be covered in red dust. <laughs> Am I the only one? Is that a is that not a universal experience? That's not part of my experience, but Oh, you never I got yelled you. at by, by your parents for <laughs> literally ta- changing everything to that weird red color? <laughs> oh, uh, the Cheeto dust is stubborn. It it is. It is, which is now making me think about what it does to your insides, and I didn't want to think about that. Mm. I don't think it's going to stop me, though. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> there was there was some controversy among uh, female Jeopardy former contestants around name that male author. Some of us thought it was refreshing to put the word male in the category title mm-hmm. because there is some history of Jeopardy using the adjective female to designate categories that would be all women, but not in any way designating categories that were going to be all men. Mm-hmm. Others of us felt that better than designating it as a male author category would be to have men and women authors in most literary categories. Well, you know how hard it is to come up with questions about both men and women. It's a real at the challenge. same time. So hard. So, I mean, why even have categories at all then? No, but I, I, I thought it was refreshing to see the, the writers um, calling this a, a male author category. I, I did notice that. I wondered if it was perhaps a kind of self-referential thing in addition to yeah. simply being like, we're only talking about men in this category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, th- I think w- there was a little bit of... Uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek awareness that it has not been the practice in the past. Mm -hmm. I appreciated it from them. These also were, there there were a a fair number of, like, relatively bro-y male authors in this category. Um, Sure. I mean, Salinger, sure. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll give you Salinger. Yeah. Uh, Name That Male Author is also where we find Daily Double number one as the 15th pick. Um, Brian finds it, and... Makes it a true daily double with 3,600 to Elliot's 1,000. Madeline is 200 in the red at this point. And Brian gets the clue. Far off, the lofty jet of the whale might be seen. And he correctly responds, who is Melville? Ken says, that's right, from Taipei, which I'm sure is not the novel Brian was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, you said that, I was like... <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) In case you've memorized all of Melville's novels word for word, you know that this is not Moby Dick. Right. You know it's not the one about the whale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Just showing off there. Yeah, he has these little subtle uh, additions (laughs) that 
I think add value to the game, but sometimes they make me feel a little dumber. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I think they're they are interesting, but it's also like a reminder of like, don't get a big head, sir. <laughs> Remember he who's the goat. All the information there in front of him, you know, True. get the get the clues in advance. So he also has the trophy, though. Yeah, yeah, he does. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead with 9,400. Madeline has 2,800. Elliot has 2,600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Medieval times, musical theater, nature, colorful groups, philosophy, and four-letter before and after. That four-letter before and after was harder for me than I thought it would be. The contestants did fine, but when I have to think of acronyms and then make them fit a before and after, I guess it's just something I've never done before. Mm -hmm. Well, if you remember which studio (laughs) released Ben-Hur, which is um, a very significant and important film. And um, also novel, right? (laughs) And novel, as I've noted many times on this podcast, uh, that will help you out with the $1,200 clue. The squeal of a teenage girl when she sees Leo the lion and realizes Mrs. Miniver or Ben-Hur is on. That is OMGM. How many months has it been since we mentioned Ben-Hur, Emily? I thought we were done with this. (laughs) It's the callback. It's like an important comedy thing. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Can Can we have an entire episode where Emily explains comedy? part of comedy is explaining the comedy that's what makes it comedy all right um (laughs) daily double number two is very early in the round it's pick number two it's in the musical theater category it's at the 1600 dollar level madeline finds it she is at 4800 brian is at 7400 and elliot's at 2600 and she wagers 3000 And the clue is, with its focus on tradition, in quotes, and families, this musical has been one of the most popular in Japan since its 1967 premiere there. Uh, And she takes a beat, but she gets the clue there, uh, and she knows that it is Fiddler on the Roof, Mm -hmm. which is my favorite musical. It's a good one. I was talking to Elliot in the audience throughout the day, and we were joking that this was one of those games where the categories came up and he was immediately like, oh, this is, this is going to be a struggle. <laughs> and part of that, I think, was because of that musical theater category, which, um, like like me, I don't think it was his, his strong suit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that feeling a number of times when a, mm-hmm. when a board has come up and I'm just like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I hope I can just get in first on all the four hundred dollars because I'm not getting anything else. Yeah, but he was able to. He was able to get a couple of those musical theater ones um, at the yeah. four hundred and the twelve hundred. Yeah, he, he got knew. in the heights. Yep, Lin Manuel Miranda was still in college when he conceived of this musical, set in a neighborhood on the northern tip of Manhattan, and that's in the heights. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three comes up in the philosophy category at the $1,200 level. Elliot finds this one and wagers 4,000 of his 5,800. Brian's at 11,400 at this point and Madeline is at 9,000. So if he gets this one right, it will put him in second place. And he gets the clue. This five-letter goal of philosophy was defined pretty basically 
by Aristotle to say of what is that it is. And he correctly responds, what is truth? Which is a very philosophical question. Right. <laughs> um, and is the correct answer. I've often wondered, uh, I, I, I wish I did this, but um, in answering, I, I wish I put the emphasis on the verb. So in this case, that would have worked out very well in, in he, yeah. if he responded, what is truth or something to that effect? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, but when you're on the stage in the moment, it's like, just get, I have to get the right answer out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One sort of funny clue under um, medieval times, the $1,200 clue um, led from these two cities, the western and eastern branches of Christianity were split apart by the Great Schism of 1054. Uh, Elliot got that. And uh, I was talking to Brian uh, recently when this game aired, and he said he wanted to tag... Um, Ryan Fenster for that mm-hmm. question, a little bit of a throwback um, to, to, I believe, that being the subject of a question that Ryan incorrectly got, but then was ruled mm-hmm. correctly and was invited back. Um, yes. So. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the reason he, he got to his uh, seven games. Yeah. I hadn't made that connection, but yeah, that that's, uh, is very much a callback to Ryan Fenster's last final jeopardy of the first leg of his run. We're calling ourselves the Grover Cleveland contestants. I, uh, he doesn't know that, but, but that's what we're calling ourselves. <laughs> but he will. <laughs> nice. Grover Cleveland came up this week. so Yeah. John Green has been all over TikTok and his own podcasts, which are excellent, ranting about the way that Americans count our presidents and that we should not be saying we're on the 46th president because... Grover Cleveland is only one person, even though his presidencies were, you know, not continuous. He can't be the 22nd and the 24th president. That's John Green's take anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the that's the hot take of the week that has been consuming some of my uh, social media attention. But what he's not considering is what if it's like the prestige and it's not the same Grover Cleveland? <laughs> Is that I, anything? <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> I I was so obsessed with the movie The Prestige for a period of time. I mean, I mean Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of the Double Jeopardy, we've been on this episode a long time. Yeah. This at is the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Brian is in the lead at twenty thousand two hundred. Elliot is at fourteen thousand two hundred, and Madeline is at nine thousand four hundred. And the final Jeopardy category is World Geography, and the clue is of the countries bordering the Mediterranean Sea, these two on opposite sides of it are the smallest and largest in area. They've had a a number of uh, final Jeopardies lately where it takes a lot of writing. Mm. They all got something down. Madeline wagered 2801 and wrote, what are Libya and Monaco? Uh, She was close, but not quite. So she drops down. Elliot wagered 4601 and he wrote what are france and gre can suggest uh maybe it was going to be greece and elliot says something that started with ger <laughs> um ken says it could be greenland but we won't know a good back and forth there but that's incorrect too and brian wagered 8201 which is a cover bet uh, and got it correct with what are algeria and monaco i got there eventually i don't know if i would have gotten there in time 
to write it all down. Because when I saw the words on opposite sides, I immediately went like east to west sides. Mm, yeah. Yeah, me too. I was like, okay, turkey and what? Turkey and what? But mm-hmm. I, I thought the same. I, I was thinking east to west. And I was like, Lebanon and Israel, they're pretty tiny. And then on the other side, Spain. I mm-hmm. think if this were my game, I would have bet big because I think geography is a strength of mine and totally not got yeah. it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But luckily for you, it wasn't. Yeah. Right? <laughs> And um, really good for for Brian for getting that in in time. That is a lot of writing with the goofy pens. Yeah. So going into Tuesday, we have the contestants Gabriella Kaufman, a fashion buyer from San Francisco, Stephen Newman, an attorney originally from New Hartford, New York, and Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, whose five-day cash winnings total $116,503. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, you crossed the line, financial slang, bad to the bone, three or 13 letter words, hobbies and pastimes, and her better half. I remember hearing a tip ages ago, I don't remember where I heard this, that you can trip up your opponent's by abbreviating the category names in ways that don't prime them to remember the whole, you know, shtick of the category, which I don't know if that's what anyone meant to do when they said 13 letter words, but I kept forgetting that there could be three letter words as a correct Mm -hmm. response. So it was working on me. (laughs) They got you good. Yeah. When you're there on the stage, you can read the category name at the top. It's not as effective. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just always went with abbreviations of it just because it was faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the Hobbies and Pastimes category. It's at the $1,000 level. Steven finds it. He is at 4600 Brian is at 6000 Gabriella is at 2400 And he wagers 3000 He gets the clue. A pharaohequinologist is a fancy name for someone who enjoys this hobby. Also the name of a 1996 Ewan McGregor film. Steven seemed like he he was really unsure about it, but uh, he got it right with what is train spotting. That's a, a fact I always forget. Pharaoh Equinologist is a person who enjoys iron horses. Somehow I don't think I had heard, or if I had, I didn't remember, uh, iron horses as as a word for trains and i was like hobby horses rocking horses i don't like like i got that it was that equine is horse and pharaoh is iron but i just didn't make the connection to trains right i always think like horseshoes yeah Mm. i was thinking horseshoes as well that was a very difficult question in my opinion yeah Yeah. appropriately thousand dollar level i would say yeah agreed so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is at 6,800, Steven's in the lead at 8,200, and Gabrielle is at 4,400. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, TV Puri, Info Please, Location, Fictional Beings, Crossword Clues D, and Historic Survivors, presented by Jeff Probst. Another video category. Those were long clues. Yes, they were. But we but we answered the we answered. They answered all of the all of the questions. No, I think we did too. We helped them. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is possible to cover all sixty one questions and have a video category. Yeah. 
in the historic survivors category at the $1,200 level. It's a long clue, but it basically shows a picture and talks about Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown. A little bit of Molly Brown, she was from Denver, and the Molly Brown house uh, is very close to where I grew up. In case that trivia connection ever becomes relevant to you, she's from here. Cool. Daily Double number two comes up in the location category at the $1,200 level as the 14th pick. Brian finds it and makes it a true daily double with 9,600. Good for him. Um, He is in a close third place at this point. Steven has 10,200. Gabriella has 11,200. And he gets the clue. The presentation of this trophy each December used to be at New York City's Downtown Athletic Club. In 2005, it moved to the PlayStation Theater. And he correctly responds, what is the Heisman Trophy? I feel like anytime Parks and Rec comes up, I have to mention it and insist that if any listeners have not watched it yet, they need to watch it. In the TV Puri category, the $1,200 level, Nick Offerman plays Ron Swanson. I need to watch more of it, all of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I am surprised to see... Brent Spiner plays what android on Star Trek The Next Generation as a $1,600 question. But my exposure to that information may be higher than other people's exposure to it. Um, That is data, of course. Yeah, I feel like for Jeopardy people, we can expect it to be a lower lower difficulty. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, even I knew that and I haven't yet watched The Next Generation. It's on my list. Okay. <laughs> but really, really, I have to talk my wife into watching it with me. That's uh, that's the hurdle that I have to cross. Daily Devil number three is in the fictional beings category. Gabriella seemed to love this one, this category in general. Uh, she finds it. It's at the $1,200 level. And she is at 16000 Behind Brian's 19,200 and ahead of Steven's 10,200. And she wagers 8,000, which is a, a good move, I would say, at that point. And she gets the clue in Bitten, Jeremy Danvers is one of these creatures of legend and the alpha of his pack. And she says, what is a vampire? And that is incorrect. She says the other one. And it is a werewolf. I, I wonder if she saw the word bitten immediately latched on to the idea of a vampire and then just kind of mm-hmm. didn't think about alpha of a pack. Yeah, both vampires and werewolves traditionally create new vampires and werewolves via biting. So I can see, you know, mm-hmm. seeing those things as kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I've, I felt like that the latter part of the clue was really where you needed to go. Right, right. So she drops down. And at the end of the double Jeopardy round, she's made it up a little bit to 8,800. Um, but Brian is in the lead with 21,600. Stephen has 15,400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, pop music. And the clue... First released as a single in 1982, this song was re-released and charted again 17 years later and 17 years after that. Gabriella has wagered 3,700 and guesses what is like a virgin. Uh, That's not correct. Stephen has wagered 2,500. Not sure where he's 
going with that. Um, but he has what is 1999, and that is correct. By Prince, re-released for the year 1999, and then again in 2016 when Prince died. And Brian has the correct answer also with a cover bet of 9,201, which makes him the winner. Funny um, inside information on this clue. During the pregame orientation, the contestant coordinator gives specific examples of, of uh, works of art and how to answer them. And 1999 was a specific example that she gave on, I believe the subject was giving a, the name of a song versus a lyric and how one can be correct or incorrect depending on the clue. But it was just just a crazy coincidence that a couple hours mm. before this taping, we were just all listening to someone talking about 1999. Hmm. That's great. But yeah, I, I, I love every time I see something come up in Jeopardy that I remember the contestant coordinators talking about as an example, mm. um, which will happen again in a yes. few minutes <laughs> or yes it will because of course the contestant coordinators have no idea what's coming up on the show mm-hmm. and like don't talk to the writers about anything i don't even know how much time they actually would spend together in the course of like a day uh if any so yeah they're quite quite separated and have to be separated from like any knowledge of the game content but they do kind of come up with these examples that they know are common jeopardy material um and so it does happen that something they mentioned comes up yeah there are a lot of questions Mm -hmm. in the history of jeopardy anyway on wednesday we have the contestants erica holenchik a provider data specialist from portland oregon alex Cohn, a psychiatry resident physician from los angeles california and brian chang an attorney from chicago illinois who is up to $147,304. Passing my total like it's nothing. And the Jeopardy round categories are state capitals, occupations, blues clues, word origins, the Grammys with E in quotation marks, and books by presidents. They had a tough time with that books by presidents category. Yeah, they did. My daughter saw the Blue's Clues category and was like, oh, I will be great at this one. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, it was just clues about things that are blue. So she was no better at it than she is at any other Jeopardy category. Oh, well, that's okay. No one on stage knew Krishna either. So she's in, <laughs> I guess, good company there. In the occupations category at the $1,000 level, the clue was from their specific fields of study, Franz Duval and Jane Goodall are classified as this particular kind of zoologist. And Erica rang in and got that correct with what is a primatologist. Franz Duval uh, opined on this clue on Facebook, at least, I don't know if he's on other social media, saying that he and Jane Goodall actually are both trained as ethologists, Hmm. um, biologists who do animal behavior studies, and that he thought that would have been a correct answer to this question. I think there is absolutely no way anyone other than those two people (laughs) would have ever gotten to that answer. I I trust that Jeopardy is thorough enough in their um, desire to accept answers that are correct, that if somebody Mm -hmm. had happened to ring in and say ethologist, I think they would have researched it and decided it was valid. 
Hopefully. Yeah. I hope. Daily Double number one comes up in the Books by Presidents category at the $800 level as the 13th pick. And Brian finds this one. And he makes it a true Daily Double with 3400 Alex is at 1000 at this point, and Erica is at 1200 And he gets the clue. His personal memoirs, completed before his death in 1885, and dedicated to the American soldier and sailor. Brian guesses who is Garfield, but that is uh, Grant. Ulysses mm-hmm. S. Grant. I immediately thought of Grant not just because of the year, but because the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in Manhattan, uh, which I used to live near, is close to Grant's tomb. I don't think that actually has anything to do with Grant. I think they just happen to be near each other in Manhattan, but it got me to the correct answer. So Nice. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Erica is in the lead with 4,200. Brian's in second place with 1,800. And Alex is at 1,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, literary vacations, funny business, science and nature, words with friends, that's F-E-R in quotation marks. Each correct answer will end with F-E-R. Could you? And course I can. Corsican. Uh, I thought Ken sold that one really well. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Okay. So there was a triple stumper in the funny business category at the $2,000 level. This comedian displayed his drama chops in A Star is Born, playing Bradley Cooper's longtime friend. And they showed a picture, and it's Dave Chappelle. And it was a triple stumper. And I saw a lot of people, like, you know, being like, how could, have these people been living under a rock? How could you not know who Dave Chappelle is? And it's like, well, I mean, maybe you know who Dave Chappelle is, but you're not able to pull his name in five seconds. Mm -hmm. Maybe you didn't see A Star is Born, and maybe... You know who Dave Chappelle is, and you would recognize him normally, but the picture they showed, you know, I I watched the episode later, and I'd already seen some people talking about nobody knowing Dave Chappelle, so I was primed to know that it was Dave Chappelle, but the picture of him, I thought, was, like, not a normal picture Mm -hmm. of Dave Chappelle. It was not his most Dave Chappelle-looking Right, it was not, like, a characteristic image of him, like, it wasn't him on his show or on a stage it was just like him in a suit smiling, and I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's just another one of these examples of like, it's okay when contestants don't don't get a thing right. Yeah. It's also worth noting that if you're watching Jeopardy at home, then the pictures you see take up your entire TV screen. And the contestants are seeing a picture on a similar size TV screen, but all the way across the stage. So... That also can impact their ability to respond correctly. And I, I feel like we get more sort of perplexing answers to picture questions um, than than to non-picture questions. And that's part of the reason is that it, it can be hard to figure out what you're seeing over there. Right. For me, it was um, it was interesting being in the room. There was a, a very long pause before the doot 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 came on and I, I i got the sense that everyone knew 
maybe, probably it was Dave Chappelle, but at $2,000 and the risk of potentially totally embarrassing yourself and going viral if you choose another actor. Uh, yeah. I think they just made the calculation to avoid stepping in that minefield. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. The second Daily Double shows up in the literary vacations category. It's pick number six. Alex finds it. It's at the $1,200 level. Uh, he is at 3800 Ahead of Brian's 3000 behind Eric is 6200 and he makes it a true Daily Double. And he gets the clue. The beginning of A Room with a View concerns a view of this Italian river. And he correctly identifies what is the Arno. Mm-hmm. Ken points out, yes, they're in Florence. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> If you remember precisely where a room with a view is set, that should get you there. Right. And, uh, Which I have no idea. So I was like, well, there are three options in my head right now. Mm-hmm. And Arno was probably the last one. I saw a room with a view and I was like, I know this one, Forster. Um, <laughs> but that's not what I was asking. <laughs> Daily Double number three comes up in the Corsican category at the $1,600 level. Alex finds this one as the 22nd pick and wagers 2000 Brian has 13400 at this point. Erica has 6200 And Alex is in the lead with 13600 The clue is a corrupt justice system imposed by Genoese invaders long encouraged Corsicans to engage in the private blood feuds called this and Alex correctly responds. What is a vendetta? Yeah. So he's, uh, he, he stays real close to Brian. He takes the lead on that for a little while. Brian catches up and, uh, going into final jeopardy. Brian has a lead at 16,600. Alex is at 15,600 and Eric is at 7,000. The final jeopardy category is the wild west. And the clue is these two legends, both known for buckskin clothes and long flowing hair, met violent ends 38 days apart in Montana and South Dakota. Uh, Erica wagered everything but $50 and put Who Are Wild Bill and Sitting Bull, which is pretty close, but not correct. So she drops down to 50. Alex wagered 15,000. Not a strategic bet. Also, in this particular case, wouldn't have ended up mattering anyway. Uh, he got it incorrect with who was custard and sitting bowl, uh, which is also incorrect. And Brian wagered zero. He bet zero with only a thousand dollar lead. Oh, it's not strategically correct. And yet. And, and yet, yet it was the right call in this particular case. And he wrote who are Hickok and Crockett, but the correct response is who are Custer, E-R, and Wild Bill Hickok. I groaned so loud when Alex's incorrect response was revealed because Erica had put down Wild Bill and Sitting Bull and Ken had said, well, not quite mm-hmm. or something like that, where where it was clear to me that one of those two was correct. Yeah. Um, and then Alex had who are uh, Custard and Sitting Bull 
Ken said, oh, no. And I thought, oh, no. Sitting Bull was the correct one, but Alex misspelled Custer. Yeah. That's not, in fact, what happened. But, yeah, I thought I thought that he had missed it only on that D. Um, yeah. Yeah. Custard, because this was the post, the first post-lunch game, and they gave <laughs> us a bag lunch. Unfortunately, the bag lunch did not have dessert that I can recall. So I'd like to think that Alex was thinking about the next meal he would have to make up for the lack of dessert. But Like, where's my pudding cup? <laughs> so, Brian, uh, with a zero wager... Comes out on top and wins his seventh game. Yep. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Jill Tucker, a development director from Molino, Oregon. Zach Newkirk, here with us today, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, uh, whose four-day cash winnings total $85,669. And Brian Chang, an attorney from Chicago, Illinois, whose seven-day cash winnings total 163904 Did Brian automatically get the champion's podium, or did they have you guys, like, draw for it? He automatically got it, and I knew that coming in... Um... Mm-hmm. that I would be in the in the middle podium. And I'm a, I'm a little superstitious. That was a little disappointing to me because I had won games at the third podium and the champions podium, but I had not won in the middle podium. So I was quite nervous uh, going in because mm. it could be a cursed spot, but... Yeah, not, I can not confirm. <laughs> I don't know. Second podium was okay to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have the Jeopardy round categories, the five W's historically, the song title on my radio display, um, Ken says it got cut off and I'm going to need your help finishing it. (laughs) Uh, literature, the White House in honor of the 60th anniversary of the White House Historical Association, clothing time and call a cab, cab in quotation marks. Well, there was a, uh. A clue in the literature category for $400 that uh, was a triple stumper, even though I think some of us knew the answer. Um, the, The clue was Griffin, the main character in this Wells novel, describes himself as almost an albino, if he could have been seen. And Brian buzzed in first, and guess what is the War of the Worlds? Then I buzzed in, and he was incorrect. And then I buzzed in and guessed, what is Invisible Man? And I remember pausing before answering and freezing for a second and thinking, is there a the there? Eh, let's just try this. 50-50. And I was not correct. And um, Jill did not buzz in. So it turned out to be a triple stumper. But what makes that $400 loss more painful is that this was also an example during the pregame orientation about the importance of articles before works of art and (laughs) i just listened to it a few hours before and i listened to it in march it was the same example and i had read invisible man and i had actually listened to a podcast on invisible man and um and i you know all of that went out the window in that particular moment so yeah oh that's so difficult yeah, and I think they are not sticklers about it unless there is a second work of art that has a title that is that's differentiated by 
the article, right? There's Invisible Man right. and there's The Invisible Man. Both of which are significant works. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they won't they won't uh, count you as wrong if you say, what is Glass Menagerie instead of The Glass Menagerie? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's not a second work that's called just Glass Menagerie, but because there is the H.G. Wells novel and the Ellison novel, they have to require you to be precise about that. I felt for you. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because after... Um... I buzzed in, Ken looked at Jill and said, Jill, and she answered something. I can't remember. It, it was also incorrect, but she didn't buzz in. And it, it almost looked like Ken was cold calling her, sort of like the Socratic method. Like, Jill, why don't you join mm-hmm. in? Um, right. So immediately when that happened, they shut the show down. There was a long pause. It was probably about 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, and I heard a voice from the back go, He's right. He's right. I think in reference to me, and I got my hopes up, like, I immediately knew that I had missed the question, but then it was this weird, you know, sort of gaslighting situation, like, oh, maybe I did get it right, but I, I don't know what the, I don't know what that voice was, was referring to, but that person was wrong as well. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the literature category. It's down at the $800 level. Jill finds it. It's pick number nine. She is at 2,000. So is Brian. So is Zach. It's a three-way tie for first place. Also a three-way tie for last place. And uh, Jill bets it all, which is the appropriate choice at any point in the Jeopardy round. And she gets the clue. An unfinished sequel to The Three Musketeers, Dumas' The Red Sphinx, continues the story of this real-life cardinal. And she gets a correct with who is Richelieu. Mm Mm-hmm. So she jumps up to a lead there. Oh, I liked seeing Zach get Grover Cleveland mm-hmm. um, at the $1,000 level of the White House, especially now thinking of him as a, a Grover Cleveland contestant. <laughs> that was appropriate. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Brian is up in the lead at 7,400. Zach is at 5,000 and Jill is at 3,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, words and phrases, science class. The Comics, Biographies, That's So Gorge, and Responses in the Form of a Question. The Jeopardy writers are just begging people, just begging the contestants to break away from, like, who is and what is, Mm -hmm. um, and just ask questions, like, how do you make a Manhattan, or whatever, you know, whatever it was, make an old-fashioned that, that, uh that they had a, a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, this one, I could tell they really wanted you all to just ask the question and like, nobody would go for it. <laughs> I, I know. I, I remember thinking that at the time and I was like, ah, you know, this could be 400 or $1,200 on the line. Uh, what's <laughs> what's adding another couple words going to do? It, it won't hurt, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it won't, you know, I mean, for the... Their job is to try and make good TV, and your job is to try and win the game. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. and like getting cute with it, I think, can sometimes take your head out in a way that's not helpful. For yeah, sure. yeah. So the the correct responses there were: um, "Am I my brother's keeper?" is what Cain asks in the King James Bible in response to "Where is Abel, thy brother?" Um, "Where's Waldo?" They had uh, a little bit about the. Uh, illustrators 
rationale for for the whole series. Zach got, do you really want to hurt me as the the next line in the Culture Club song after, oh no, uh, before, do you really want to make me cry? Zach also got Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the Edward yes. Albee play. Very nice. I feel like that was an example in our contestant briefing that we could just say Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I think we were cautioned against it because it would be distracting to kind of break from the format of starting with what is. Yeah. And uh, and then we had a little bit of difficulty with Romeo says, but soft asks this question and continues, it is the East and Juliet is the sun. Brian tried, what is, what light from yonder window breaks? And that was incorrect. And then Jill tried uh, and got it correct with what light through yonder window breaks. Although she emphasized yonder, which made me think maybe she she thought Brian had missed that word. He had put a from instead of a through. But anyway, she got the whole quotation correct and, and got that 2000. Yeah. Dilly Double 2 comes up in the biographies category at the $1,600 level. Zach finds this one. And you found it at the fourth pick, Zach, and wagered 4,000 of your 5,800, looking to take the lead away from Brian at 7,400. Jill was right behind you with 5,400. Your clue was Hayden Herrera's Frida tells of Kahlo's love affair with this Russian. And you correctly responded, who was Trotsky? Which I didn't know anything about that was totally news to me. How did you make that connection? Yeah, it was a, it was a guess uh, for sure. I, I did not know that um, straight away. My thought process was Frida Kahlo lived in Mexico City, and I knew that Trotsky died in Mexico City famously with an ice pick to his head. <laughs> and I knew he died there <laughs> in 1940. And that roughly coincided with Frida Kahlo's lifespan, which I, I'm blanking on the exact years, but I knew she was alive around that time mm-hmm. period. And so I, I made that connection to Trotsky. Um, but I, I couldn't tell you any other Russians in Mexico at the time. So it, it was a bit yeah. of a stretch. But um, yeah, that was, that, was a, that was an educated guess for sure. But it, it paid nice. off. Yeah, it sure did. Yeah. And then uh, Daily Double number three, Zach also finds it. It's pick number 13. It's in the That's So Gorge category at the $1,200 level. You were up at 15000 over Brian's 9000 and Jill's 7800 and you wagered 5000 That's a good bet. And the clue is, Wadi al-Muluk is the Arabic name of this narrow gorge where Tutankhamun was laid to rest. And it looked like you were guessing uh, when you said the Valley of the Kings, which is correct. Were you guessing? Similar situation to the first Daily Double. I remembered that there was a Valley of the Kings in in Egypt where a lot of the pharaohs were buried, but I couldn't tell you the, the Arabic name of it. So I just thought of the only valley that I knew in Egypt, and it, it worked. Yeah. Nice. In terms of um, strategy, Brian uh, was giving me a little bit of... Uh, he was ribbing me a little bit because after the first daily double, I continued to pick questions in the biographies category, um, mm-hmm. even though I won't, I wouldn't find a daily double in that category. And it's just, just funny the the different ways of 
strategy and and thinking about where you could gain the most money. I'm personally not uh, a daily double hunter. Um, he definitely was, and I I tend to think biographies. That's a category that I think I'll be good at, so I'll stick here. And I opted, you know, to play that way as opposed to to jumping around. It's just I don't know. Yeah, just different mm-hmm. different, different strategies. Yeah, definitely. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Zach is in the lead with twenty three thousand six hundred. Brian has. 12,600. Jill has 10,600. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 20th century authors. And the clue, in a 1959 article he wrote, people began to call themselves beatniks, beats, bugniks, and I was called the avatar of all this. Jill wagered everything but 100, 10,500, and correctly responded, who is Jack Kerouac? Brian wagered 11,001, so he is looking to cover a zero from Zach. Um, So if he gets it right and Zach gets it wrong, he will win no matter what the other wagers are. Um, And he has it correct with who is Kerouac, uh, but Zach, you made a cover bet with 1601, and you knew it, who is Kerouac. I uh I thought about Ginsburg for a minute at home, yeah. but ended up settling on Kerouac. I had the same thought, but Ginsburg was more of a poet, and Kerouac mm-hmm. was really an author. Mm-hmm. I felt like Kerouac was the obvious choice. Yeah, part of my um, studying methods, probably like like a lot of other folks um, studying for the show, is to go on J Archive and, and play games either with myself or my wife would read questions to me. Um, and in doing that, you notice a lot of recurring characters and Jack Kerouac, a hundred percent is a very favorite answer in Jeopardy. Um, and so yep. when I saw that clue, I immediately thought Kerouac for sure, because the writers love Kerouac. And then as the time was running out, I, I suddenly thought, Oh my gosh, could it be Ginsburg? But I ultimately said, yeah, go with your gut and, um, and opted not to cross out and write Ginsburg, which would have been tragic. <laughs> oh, that was heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, there we go. And mm-hmm. so uh, Brian's run ends at seven games, which, you know, it's a good number to win. It's a mm-hmm. good number. I'm not biased or anything. Uh, so he uh, will be back for a tournament. Ken said something about, like, the upcoming tournament already being, like, planned on or whatever. So he'll be in the next group, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah, Ken announced on air, but uh, Andy over at the Jeopardy fan confirms that they are placing the Tournament of Champions cutoff at the date of Alex's death. Uh. So it looks like Brian is heading for the following Tournament of Champions. And Zach, I guess it, it goes until you're... I guess you you're cut you you fall in with the group where your run ends. I guess correct. Yeah, so, in the post yeah. Alex group. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's your uh, that's your fifth win, which you know conventionally puts you over that threshold too, right? Yeah. Um, it was a stressful game. <laughs> it was um, <laughs> an unusual way to get to a fifth win, um, but I mean Brian uh, was a fantastic. A champion for for many days and jill just did phenomenal in a very 
unlucky draw. I think it was. Yeah. Um, I kept apologizing profusely, like to an annoying degree to her. Um, so like, <laughs> Man, this is. I'm so sorry. Like, uh, and and she was just she was just amazing. It was just like, dude, chill out. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I will. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was it was it was a fun game. It was probably my favorite of all the games uh, that I played. Nice. Yeah. And on Friday, we have the contestants Bo Mendez, a museum and cultural professional originally from New Braunfels, Texas, Kristen Siegel, a high school Spanish teacher from Columbus, Ohio, and Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, whose five-day cash winnings total $110,870. And the, yeah, <laughs> that, is a, that is a number of digits there. And uh, the Jeopardy round categories are Jim and Juice, The Sportscasters Quote, Lincoln Blogs, Places in the Good Book, Code Words, and Prime Rhyme, which ended up all being words that rhyme with rhyme. Or with prime. Or with prime, I guess. <laughs> Since that makes more sense, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. This round had two of my weaker categories, the Bible and sports. So I tried to avoid those as much as I could <laughs> and went uh, straight for history. And that's why I focused mostly on Lincoln. Nice. Yeah. You are the only person would, who got yeah, correct <laughs> responses in the places in the good book category. So, you know, you did fine. On that, although we did have three triple stumpers in that there category. There were a few triple stumpers, yeah. 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 And that Lincoln Blogs category is where you uncovered Daily Double number one super early as the fourth pick. And at that point, you just had 800 because you had gotten the 200 and the $600 clues in that category, and Bo had gotten the 400 So, of course, you wagered 1000 the maximum, which is definitely the right call. You know that. Um, <laughs> and uh, the clue there was June 16, 1858. I'm going to use a house divided against itself cannot stand as I begin taking him on for Senate. He's got no chance. And you knew that was Stephen Douglas, the Lincoln Douglas debates. Fighting Steve. I watched it again and I had this long pause before answering and I cannot remember why I, I i knew that at the time and i don't know if i was trying to go for dramatic effect for whatever reason um i doubt yeah. it but i i don't know one story i'd like to tell about this this round i mean uh, right in the middle of it was of course the interviews and this was probably the most embarrassing moment of my life but uh ken said to me oh so you're a voting rights attorney and i said that's right alec and then I paused and I, mm-hmm. he looked at me and just his facial expression, I felt so oh. bad. And I corrected myself and said, I'm so sorry. That's right, Ken. So if you view it again, the, the editing, at least to me, it looks very, <laughs> very deliberate. And I heard a voice in the back during this long pause being like, keep going. So I said, that's right, Ken, I am. And that just shook me. I, I felt so bad. And so I didn't answer for a few questions after, um, the interview round but mm. afterwards ken was like oh it's totally fine like it happens all the time on the stage and then later someone on the crew called him alex and they didn't even notice and he locked eyes with me again was like see and I'm like, yeah <laughs> i'm glad yeah. you remembered it was me <laughs> <laughs> i mean 
in your defense, we do have, you know, 36 years of that being the way we think about Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure I would have made that mistake, too. I, I'm sure, like he pointed out, plenty of people do. So. Yeah, and he was he was like, oh, if there's anyone to be compared to or mistaken for, uh, there's no one better than Alex Trebek, which was yeah. a great edit. Yeah, for sure. I actually didn't know the thousand dollar level of places in the good book. So that that's a <gasps> tough clue, which is uh, now the largest city in the Negev desert. It was where Abraham made a covenant with the Philistine king Abimelech in Genesis 21. And that is Beersheba. You would need a very in-depth knowledge of the book of Genesis or to know which is the largest city in the Negev desert. Uh, the second's probably more likely. I didn't have that, and I've read Genesis a lot. Um, <laughs> you happen to be an expert. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I'm not surprised nobody knew that. At the $800 level, we had God tells Jonah to preach against the people of this city. At first he flees, but later he gets into denouncing them. That one's Nineveh, and you just have to, I mean, you'd have to know the story of Jonah. There's not some other way into that yeah. clue. I, I really like the book of Jonah. It's a fun story. It's a funny story, which kind of gets lost because people feel like the Bible is very serious. It's an enjoyable story. Bo guessed Sodom, which is, you know, not a bad guess. Another kind of famously iniquitous city of the Bible. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Zach is in the lead with 4,800. Kristen has 2,600. Bo has 3,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories Poet Paris. 1980s time capsule around the Caribbean to phrase a coin, big star and number one record. And I'll tell you what, if you listen to my deep dive on stars a few weeks ago, that big star category would have been pretty easy. Mm-hmm. I think I named every one of those correct responses. Yes. They're fairly certain. I remembered a good number of the star responses. I'm never, ever again going to say Gemini. Gemini. With first thinking Gemini and laughing. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite clues from this round, um, I don't know if my facial expression revealed it, but the $400 clue for 1980s time capsule was about one of the worst Christmas songs out there. Do they know it's Christmas? <laughs> It's sort of an inside joke that I have with um, my friends and my my wife because the song is just so interesting when it comes to lyrics. There's a phrase in there that's, or the lyric goes something like, where nothing ever grows, no rains or rivers flow. Do they even know it's Christmas? And it's about Africa as a whole. I mean, it was was, uh, written to raise money for the famine in Ethiopia. But the lyrics, you wouldn't know that it was specific to Ethiopia. And so you have this vision of Africa uh, where there are no rivers at all and there's just <laughs> no rains ever. And it is just a wildly dated song. I mean, you still hear it on the radio at, at Christmas time. It's, it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed the to phrase a coin category. I don't know. I like, I like idioms and wordplay. Mm-hmm. So we had to show no this coin that's show no quarter. That's not 
a coin idiom. That's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a different use of quarter, but, you know, but sure. And uh, to drop one of these is to inform on someone. Uh, Zach got that one. Actually, got Zach got both of both of these that I just mentioned. That's a dime. The $2,000 level, you've already talked about this. Specifically. Yes, <laughs> when this alliterative, alliterative phrase offering to wager money against bakery treats first appeared, the coins were still silver. It's dollars to donuts. Uh, that, that was a month or two ago. Yeah, no, that idiom has lost its meaning as price of a donut has approached and then exceeded a dollar. Um, <laughs> that's that's one of one of my favorite kind of rants. To, it's it's not really a rant. I'm not angry, but you know, I I think it's a fun. Like we still say it, but like the idiom doesn't work. You just have to know what it means. Right. Daily double number two was at pick number six. It was in the Around the Caribbean category. Zach found it. You actually were the only one to get cor- uh, give correct responses in this category as well. Nice. Uh, you were in the lead at 6,800. Uh, Kristen was at 1,800 and Bo's at 1,400, and you wagered 3,000. I know you mentioned earlier uh, in the recording that you felt that feel like geography is one of your strong points, so that wager makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and you got the clue. Two capital cities are located on this Caribbean island. Marigo, which is French, and Philipsburg, which is Dutch. And you got it correct with St. Martin, which was a nice poll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would not have known um, if not I had actually gone there on a Disney cruise. So oh, wow. went to both parts of the island. It's it's relatively small. And uh, we took a taxi to go on. We I think we landed on the French side and we went over to the Dutch side very briefly. Or maybe it was reverse. But I know in 2017 they had some pretty significant hurricane damage. So I hope they're hope they're recovering well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is the 27th pick at the $2,000 level of Big Star. Um, both daily doubles at the $2,000 level this time. Bo finds this one and wagers 2600 of his 5800 at this point zach is at 15000 kristen's at 5400 27 clues in this is probably the time for a true a daily double i would move. think this yeah. yeah this a correct response here will take him to a little over half of zach's total so a big wager would put him in a much better position here, and a miss is going to um, tank him pretty much regardless. Yeah. Um, he gets the clue. The name of this bright red star in the constellation Scorpius denotes it as a rival of the Greek god of war. And he struggles with this one. He can't come up with anything. Kyle, you talked about this. I had forgotten it. And so I was thinking, okay, the Greek god of war is Ares. And then I was trying to think of like a mythological figure who had a rivalry with Ares. Mm. Um, But this is just Antares. Yeah, like Like, literally not Mars. Yeah. It is is not Um, Ares. Yes. So I wonder if he headed in that direction as well. But yeah, it's it, it's a it's a little more straightforward than I was trying to do. Anyway, so he drops down. I had the yeah. same thought process, Emily, and I would have totally not gotten that question as well. So I'm glad I, I didn't yeah. get that daily double. A rough one. Right? Yeah, those those feel good when someone else gets the daily double and you're like, ah, dang it. And then it's something you didn't know. And you're like, oh, whew. oh, man, yeah. dodged a bullet there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Zach is at 17,000, which is a lock position over Kristen's 7,000 and Bo's 4,400. The final Jeopardy category is British Army History, and the clue is the Army's longest continuous campaign, 1969 to 2007, began in this Northern Ireland city, known by either of two different names. Uh, This is a triple stumper. All the contestants put the same one. So Bo wagered 4,000. He put what is Belfast. Uh, That is incorrect. He went down to 400. Kristen wagered 1,900 to get above Bo's double if she got it right. And she also put what is Belfast. And then Zach wagered 2,999 to not risk the lock and also wrote what is Belfast. But the response they were looking for was Derry or Londonderry. Womp womp. Yeah. (laughs) Which, uh, that, I mean, that was kind of a, that was a pretty tough clue, I thought. I got there and I'm, I'm going to talk about this because I'm really proud of how roundabout it was. The only reason I got there is because I thought, is it Belfast? I feel like I would know if Belfast had another name. And I also feel like that's the answer that anyone would guess, so it's probably not correct. So what else could it be? Do I know any other Northern Irish cities? No. Do I know anything related to Northern Ireland? I know that Percy Granger wrote a, an arrangement of an Irish tune from County Derry. I think I'll think it's Derry. I would put Derry. Hmm. <laughs> and, and it ended up being right. And I was like, wow, that, that would have been a, a very big thing for me if I were on the show. That is a journey. Do you think you could have done that in 30 seconds? I mean, I did it while I was watching. So yeah. I, I feel like I, I don't know that I could have gotten Derry written down that quickly. But Yeah, that's that's the thing is like. It's one thing to come up with the response in your mind by the time the music stops, and it's another thing to write it with the stupid pen by yeah. the time the music stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very impressive, though. Thanks. Once I heard the correct response, I remembered that the tune of Danny Boy is called Londonderry Air. Um, Which is also the same Percy Granger tune. Yeah. Oh, 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 yes. Okay. So, yeah, I made the connection after I heard the response, um, but I would have also said, what is Belfast? On the Jeopardy fan, Andy Saunders made a pretty interesting and vehement point that this was probably a somewhat misguided clue, because depending on what answer the contestant would write down, uh, they would almost have to pick a side in the Northern Irish conflict, um, sure. which could put them in an awkward position. And I, I didn't even think that did not even cross my mind at the time. And um, I'm glad we all dodged that potential bullet by, mm-hmm. by missing the question. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm just reading his commentary here now. Yeah. Yeah. They've they've sort of stepped in a few like political conflicts before. I'm thinking of asking what country Bethlehem is in, uh, which mm. they did like about a year ago now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where a contestant rang in and correctly said Palestine and they were looking for Israel and like, yikes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, Andy thinks they have not done something like this on final jeopardy before. And I think, I think, I think I'm with him. That's not super wise. It's pretty charged. Yeah. Well, on that note, Zach wins his sixth game. And uh, is going to come back next week. 
we get to see how long uh, how long you go for. Obviously, you know how long you go for, but we don't yet. Yeah. Leave you in suspense. Uh, yeah. Very excited to see how the rest of this goes and really looking forward to Monday's game. So this is the time in the show when we take a break to remind you that we have a Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash potent potables. We have some content on there. We have some outtakes. We have our recaps of the GOAT tournament. Uh, we have Kyle and me comparing notes on like the, the Jeopardy test uh, back before it was the anytime test. And we're thinking about some some new stuff to put on there and, you know, collecting more outtakes. So there will be more stuff up there eventually. And if you'd like to check it out, um, we certainly welcome you to do that. We also want to remind you that it would really help us out if you would leave us a rating or a review, um, especially if it is a five-star rating. Those help us out a lot. And we thought maybe we could take a minute here and we'll, we'll do more in future weeks to read a five-star review. Uh, so this one is from Llama Wood J. I know who that is. He writes, it's why you love trivia. Trivia is more than just memorizing lists. It's the process of how we learn new information and what its significance is. Emily and Kyle do a great job of both discussing Jeopardy from a player's perspective, but also go deep on subjects you might not realize you're interested in, but really are. Who knows? You might use that info on your Jeopardy appearance. So thank you, Llama Wood J. We appreciate it. We'll be reading more reviews in future weeks. And uh, if you want your words read on the podcast, you should leave us a review. We also want to remind you to wear your mask. Follow the Jeopardy fans lead and remind you that it has to go over your nose as well. Um, <laughs> and some of I still see. I still see it out in public. So put it over your nose, please. And... Uh, our usual reminder to get involved in something that matters, check out blacklivesmatter.com or communityjusticeexchange.org if you're looking for a place to connect. And Zach put in such a lovely plug for registering to vote um, yeah. that we want to reiterate that as well. And thank you for using your your time and your, your voice in that way, Zach. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a great time to do it with the uh, lines are short and you have plenty of time to correct any mistakes that you might have. Or if you move and need to update your address better early than last minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. All right. So Zach has our deep dive this week. Um, should we try and take some guesses about what you're talking about? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh a normal part of our format. Um, I will is, guess. I'm gonna guess George the Third. Huh? Is that correct? <laughs> uh, related, but not exactly correct. Hmm. Well, then I have no idea. <laughs> 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 Unless he was a werewolf, I don't think it was werewolves. <laughs> that would have uh, been a good uh, good topic for today. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not gonna come to anything. So my, I'm going to pass on my guess. So not terribly exciting, but I, I just did a, a little bit of a deep dive into British Army history based on the final Jeopardy category of game number five this week. Sure, nice. We all whiffed on <laughs> So yeah, I have uh, five trivia questions uh, with some facts associated with each one. And um, if it's all right, I, I wrote the questions in the form of answers 
because that's the format I am most familiar with over the past sure. year awesome. of studying. Yeah. <laughs> get that. So I'll, I'll get started uh, with, with the first clue or the 200 or $400 clue. This slang term for a British soldier dates to the early 1600s. Okay, I have my... Slang term for a British soldier. Okay, I've got mine. I'm guessing, uh, what is red coat? I also was going to go with red coat. My second guess was lobster, but I'm going with red coat. Oh, yeah. Uh, red coat was what I was thinking, but I, okay, I, I do wonder if lobster uh, would be acceptable. I'll accept it, but <laughs> I, I, I lack the gravitas <laughs> of a Jeopardy judge. Yeah, red coat apparently has been in use since the early 1600s. There was a rumor that British military uniforms were dyed red because they did not show bloodstains. But I looked into this a little bit, and that is decidedly not true. Red was primarily used because red dye was cheaper, and red dyes were less likely to fade when exposed to the uh, to the elements, the weather and the like, unlike other colors like green and, and blue. Hmm. Interesting. So it was yeah, a cost-saving I, I, measure. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I had definitely heard the, you know, it doesn't show when we bleed thing, which I just assumed was true because I'd never heard anything otherwise, but nice. Yeah, cool. Well, nice work. Number two, the British military's highest military award is named for this second longest reigning monarch. Got it. All right, I've got mine. You go first this time. I realized I used the word military twice in uh, that clue, so I apologize for that. That's okay. I'll tell you what, writing writing trivia questions is so much harder than it seems. It's harder than it seems, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I believe I already had this. I I had it in my head before you gave the clue the second. I believe you're talking about Victoria and the Victoria Cross. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also thought of the Victoria Cross. Nice. You guys are killing it. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the Victoria Cross is awarded for valor in the presence of the enemy to members of the British Armed Forces. Um, it was initially introduced in 1856 in the aftermath of the Crimean War, and the medal has been awarded more than 1,300 times, but only 15 of them have been awarded since the end of the Second World War, and most recently was rewarded for um, action in Afghanistan. Hmm. Saying that, I guess it. How many major like military actions has the British Army been engaged in since the Second World War? Yeah, you know? uh, it's a good question. I guess uh, the Suez conflict. I don't know how many you know actions there were, um, and then not the Falklands. Um, yeah, I don't know if any Victoria crosses were awarded then. I but still, that's that's just interesting to think about. Well, nice work. I will move on to the uh, six hundred or or twelve hundred dollar clue. <laughs> the tradition of wearing these flowers originates from their growing in a World War One battlefield mentioned in the poem "In Flanders Fields" mm-hmm. by John McRae. All right, I've got mine locked in. Yeah, me me too. Yeah. I'm gonna let you go first on this one. So All right, that if this I one, get it wrong, I can just yeah go it's go. It's poppies. Yeah, okay, it is poppies. Good. <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure this is poppies, but it's a poem, so I don't know. Hearing this. 
question. I was remembering um, I was in Hong Kong on, oh gosh, what is the day? Like the, like the British. Anyway, people were all wearing these like these pins on their on their lapels with poppies. And I was like, what's that about? Um, I believe it's and, uh, Day. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Sorry. And I know I should have the date of that in my head, but I don't. It's sometime think, in November, right? I think it's November 11th. Yes. Yes, that's right. So that's that's kind of what I associate with that. Yeah. Uh, poppies, I guess, grew on the graves of fallen soldiers. And so um, the author of In Flanders Field, In Flanders Fields, uh, McRae, he was a military doctor in the Canadian Armed Forces. So it's a bit of a stretch that we're in the British Army history category because he was Canadian. <laughs> Commonwealth, it's fine. And, and he wrote that shortly after presiding over uh, the funeral of a friend um, who, who died in the Second Battle of Ypres in 1917. Mm. Nice work. I don't know if I made these too easy, but <laughs> let's see. Uh, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling great about getting three in a row. Uh, <laughs> Um, okay, number four. The first battle between these types of modern weapons was the Second Battle of Vier Bretonneux on April 24th, 1918. Okay. I have my answer. Oh, I don't know. I'm not feeling super confident on this one, but let me let me lock something in. All right. I don't feel great about my guess, but I'm committing to it. Okay, go ahead, Kyle. Uh, are those tanks? They're tanks. Oh, nice. I was I was like, machine guns? Um, <laughs> uh, nice work, Kyle. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess the tanks did have machine guns on them, so you're on the, the right track. Um, but yeah, these, this was the first tank battle in history. Um, it was three German tanks versus three... British tanks, these were large, slow, clunky machines that probably went about 5 to 10 miles per hour. They broke down often. Yeah. Um, they were they were not reliable at all. They were just, you know, piles of metal all put together and thrown in. This was part of a German offensive uh, shortly after they had beaten Russia. And so they were trying a, a last gasp effort to... Um, you know, get to Paris before American troops uh, shored up the the Allied line, uh, but they were ultimately, obviously, unsuccessful, and uh, their uh, tank, I guess, offensive was not really present. Um, yeah, there were only a handful of German tanks were made in World War One. Mm-hmm. By yeah. World War Two, they definitely figured it out. <laughs> they did, yes. All right, and so my my last question was, according to William Shakespeare, the British battle cry in this 1915 battle was, God for Harry, England, and St. George. For Harry, England, and St. George. I, I have my guess. I Yeah, I, I'm not certain on this, but I have my guess. I... Oh... I feel like I'm going to kick myself, but nothing's coming to me. I'm going to pass on this one. My, okay, my guess for... You're asking for the battle, right? Yeah. Is it the Battle of Bosworth Field? No, unfortunately. Um, it's the Battle of Agincourt. And that was... Oh! That was language taken from um, 
Henry V's Act Three, Scene One. It was a, a long speech. Um, I guess one of those dramatic pre-battle speeches uh, by sure. Henry V. Not the St. Crispin's Day speech, but but another <laughs> long soliloquy. <laughs> okay, I do not know the histories at yeah, all. That, I was, I was like, I know he wrote Richard the Third. Yeah, that rings a bell now that you say it. But I was I, I was not going to get there. Um, yeah. But definitely, it's a fair question. It's like one of those things that's like, oh, yeah, no, I should know things about that. (laughs) Definitely. So that was our our deep-ish dive into British Army history. All Um, right. You all did it quite well. Um, And I I think I, not to pat myself on the back, but I I think I was right in terms of order of difficulty. Yeah, you definitely were. (laughs) I would agree 100%. Mm -hmm. Cool. Nice. All right. Thank you so much for... uh, for the commentary on your episodes, for the deep dive and quiz, Zach, we really appreciate you being with us. Um, thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Lovely, as always, to talk about Jeopardy here and uh, hope you enjoy it. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or a review if you wouldn't mind. You can check out our Patreon if you want to at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And whether that's of interest to you or not, you can always tell your friends um, about our podcast. You and they can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week to continue talking about Zach Newkirk's winning streak, however long that may continue. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.